Hello and welcome to episode 8 of Blowing Cartridges, the video game podcast where we dive into the issues surrounding gaming culture and the games themselves. I'm Brendan Tamp, and joining me as always is my good friend and co-host, Zach Clark. Konnichiwa, Brendan-san. Genki des. <laughs> ah, guten tag. Wie geht es dir? Uh, uh, well, I've run out of languages after using one other than English, uh, but I'm good, Brendan. Uh, thanks for asking. How about yourself? You doing doing well? Yeah, can't complain. Wish I actually understood more than English, and I, I can pretend to speak German, of course, but that's all the Duolingo gets you, so <laughs> it's a trial sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, I know. I've been trying Duolingo and drops for a number of things, and um, man, I tell you what, like compared to my high school level, like Japanese or Latin, it's all gone. Like I just lost it all. Like it's, it really should have kept it up, but no, it's back to square one. Uh, thank God for anime that keeps me like slightly on top of my uh, <laughs> a few key sentences. What in Latin? I didn't know there was Latin anime. Yeah, my Latin Latin uh, anime has I I have I have Japanese audio and Latin uh, subs so that I you know, <laughs> practice both at the same time. That sounds like a match made in heaven, Zach. Yeah, no, it's it's perfect. The optimal way to uh, consume anime goodness. Well, if the listener was wondering, we're not just I guess going off on tangents and talking about irrelevant banter because today's topic we want to talk about localization of video games because I think most people who listen to this are either friends of us or have an interest in gaming to some level of a degree. So they'll be aware of the fact that a lot of video games are not made in English-speaking countries. For a long time, they came from Japan due to, well, Nintendo dominated console gaming in the 80s. Sega joined the gang. Then there was other lesser-known console makers like Neo Geo and Hudson Soft and the like, and then Sony in the 90s. And it wasn't until the early 2000s that you had a Western developer in Microsoft actually create a video game console that gained traction in the terms of sales. So our hobby was very much dominated by Japan outside of PC gaming, which was always traditionally Western. And I think it's less of a factor these days, but still Nintendo and Sony are massive players in the sphere. And I think it's one of the few consumer media where this is the case that it's not Western dominated. Because if you look at books, if you look at films, they're all very generally American centric, but it's not the case for video games for a large degree. Again, I'd say more so now that, oh, I'm sorry, more so when we were younger than now. I mean, maybe I'm wrong here, but uh, I definitely noticed the fact that games uh, had to get, you know, translated or maybe didn't come out in, in Western you know, speaking countries like Australia where we are uh, when we were younger. But in this day and age, I feel like a lot of the big stuff gets a worldwide release, which is great. Uh, and translated into many languages, not just obviously English, but uh, numerous, you know, European languages like German, uh, Italian, and so on and so forth. Plus other Asian languages, you know, um, China has been getting more and more officially localized games uh, in in recent years. So it's it's definitely something I've noticed. And yeah, you're right. Like you know, when we were growing up, consoles were dominated by Japanese companies. I mean, we're a bit too young for the initial US boom, which would have been like Atari, 
and sort of that that era of gaming. Uh, not that they had a lot of text <laughs> to localize, <laughs> but uh, you know, during our era, if you were playing consoles, you know, as a kid, uh, PlayStation or Nintendo sixty four or maybe a, a Sega Saturn, <laughs> um, you were, you were playing on a Japanese device, which uh, obviously had some games made by Westerners, but also the majority made in Japan uh, and then brought over to us to to enjoy. So yeah, it, it's it's definitely been something that's been a big factor, I suppose. Once you realize it, I mean, you know, when you're a super young kid, you have no concept of, you know, Japanese games or US games, which probably brings me to a, a, my first question for you, Brandon. When did you sort of realize that some of the games you were playing were maybe not made by someone that spoke English, I guess is, is the way to put it. You know, when did you realize like your Mario's, which is an Italian plumber, is actually created and developed by Japanese people? It's odd to think about, actually, because I think in a way I was always innately aware that it, it had that heritage, it had that background, because as I've mentioned previously, I have an older brother and he very much played a key role in my gaming choices because he was the one with the 64, he had a Game Boy, and that's when I first was very much inoculated by video games. I was in, I started consuming video games as a pastime, as something to do as an entertainment form. So I guess it was something that I never really thought about, but I knew. So I can't really actually say when it became more apparent that it was the case. I think it's just something like, you know, as a child, sometimes you, you're encounter with certain things and instead of thinking, sitting back and thinking, oh, that's quite strange or that's remarkable, you just take it as it is because you don't really know any better because that's what you know. I think that's very much was the case for me personally when it came to the fact that I was a huge Nintendo fan growing up and Nintendo was a purely Japanese thing. It was just one of the facts of life, I guess. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think that I also think about when, you know, we grew up, Japanese media, I think, really also dominated that mm -hmm. our, our space of, for kids, you know, television, kids. Cheese TV. Yeah, Cheese TV, you know, Dragon Ball Z, Digimon, Beyblades, Yu-Gi-Oh, all of that clearly from Japan. and. You sort of, if you if you like me, read sort of the magazines like K Zone and similar things like Mania. I guess, and not that I personally read that, but I'm sure some people did. They would often refer to the fact that these things are coming from Japan, and you know, do quote unquote uh, journalism, I suppose, uh, and and report on rumors and speculation about like, oh, like there's gonna be like a Super Saiyan like three, which you heard it here first, uh, when really all they had was some person who clearly knew a bit about Japan imported Japanese <laughs> manga and, and and read that there's a Super Saiyan 3 in um in Dragon Ball and turned it into a, a rumor that then spread across the, the playground as, as if it wasn't a fact already. Uh so you became sort of innately aware of Japan as a bit of a, a you know mysterious mystical place where they got everything first, uh or at least everything we cared about as as kids. Uh and and thus also were the creators, I suppose, of all these things we, we loved growing up in the in the 90s and, and 2000s, for sure. And that's probably where, I, I mean, Pokemon's probably the one that really stood out as well when it comes to games, because obviously that linked into the TV show, trading cards, and you would see, you know, every, every now and then a kid would pull out a, a Pokemon card that's got a weird looking back to it, it's, you know, more colourful, and then on the other side, the actual cards in 
this language that you probably don't know how to read or speak. And that really sort of alerted, I guess, me and probably most of my you know friends to the fact that, oh yeah, this is from another country. This is not from Australia or, or America, where a lot of other things were, you know, made. But I guess it's one thing to realize that games are made in, you know, these days all over the world, and probably even back then all over the world to some extent. I'm kind of curious, when was the first time you sort of hit a roadblock in terms of like, there's this game, you've heard about it, and it just hasn't come out in, you know, Australia. It just never came here. Uh, and maybe you, you've now, that you've gotten older, you've researched and figured out why, but back then you, you didn't and you just kind of <laughs> were upset because this game, you know, got stuck. You know, whether it's Japan or if it's another country that developed it, doesn't really matter. I'm just kind of curious what your first experience of, of having a game, I guess, not localized really sort of hit you. Actually, the first time I came aware of the fact that there were certain games that didn't come out in Australia that I can remember vividly was actually playing Super Smash Bros. Melee and, and going through the trophies that you collect through that game and all the trophies are dedicated to the various Nintendo franchises and generally attached to characters that are in the game. And I remember getting NES-related trophies and finding out about Earthbound and seen in the text that it said oh it was only released in North America only and I guess I was the sort of person that I absolutely loved Super Smash Brothers Melee and I really wanted to play the games that were attached to these characters and I probably would have never have got a Super Nintendo and played Earthbound if it had been released in Australia because the fact is I still don't own a Super Nintendo and what it's been 20 years since Melee came out nearly. <laughs> You've had more than enough opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> well exactly. But I, I've played Earthbound since. I, I've never finished it, but I got it on Wii U Virtual Console and played it. But that's beside the point. So I guess for me, it was that moment of reading that and realizing, well, there's characters and there's games that influence this franchise that I love, Super Smash Brothers. But I can't play. I can't consume everything that's related to that. It sort of hit me in a way that at that point I realized that well, being a gamer in Australia meant that you wouldn't necessarily get everything because. America always got a lot of things first or they got a lot of things and they never came over. And I think that carried over in a lot of different media as well. There was always toys that came out in America first and you always heard rumours of things about, oh, America got this and we're not getting it because we're in Australia, we're in the Antipodes, no one actually likes us. Do we actually exist as a country or not? I still don't (laughs) know. I think we're both actors pretending we're Australian, but... (laughs) We won't break the contracts we signed, so we won't talk about that topic anymore. Yeah, let's let's stop right there. But you actually brought up an interesting point around uh, localization, which is again something that's I think luckily gone you know the way of the dodo, which is uh, region locking, right? Because Earthbound, the game you just brought up, a game that was translated into English, there was no reason that you couldn't play it as an Australian and fully understand the game, right? Uh, it was, yeah, it was in our language, albeit maybe with a few less use in some of the words. <laughs> but it was, you know, re- something we could read and understand. But because of region locking, uh, even if, you know, young Brendan managed to convince his parents to find a way back then to import a copy from, you know, the United States, you couldn't have played it on a local Super Nintendo, uh, even if you wanted to, well, at least not without some other device uh, to, to make it happen. Which is, um, yeah, another element that I think really hit hard, particularly here in Australia, right? Because 
uh, and I guess to an extent other other countries that were classified in the the PAL or PAL territory of region locking, which was basically us, New Zealand, Europe, and maybe there's parts of Asia. Not too sure, to be honest with you. Um, I think they're a separate thing, though, uh, compared to America, which was NTSC. Uh, and I feel like Japan might be NTSCJ or something yes, like they that. Are. But they, they're their own region. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, so they're, they're in their own little basket as well. But it definitely felt like a, a, a bit of a factor, at least for me growing up. Uh, maybe not so much in those earlier days, again, like uh, 64 or GameCube, because it wasn't like I was fully aware of every game, I suppose, coming out, but definitely towards the end of GameCube, sort of start of Wii, PS3, 360 era, there were these games, like the one that sticks out for me uh, on the Wii was like Excitebots, which was like a racing game in the Excite series, you know, Excite Bike, Excite Truck, uh, which got released in America, but never local, or never released in a, in a, in a PAL version, so if I wanted to play that on a local Wii, I, I'd have to get some sort of, you know, separate disc or device that would sort of <laughs> bypass the region locking, pop the, the copy of Excitebots into my Wii and then it would work. But without that, it's, it's either buy a American Wii or or just go without. Um, and ultimately, I, I haven't actually played Excitebots to this day because while well, I was intrigued, it, you know, it wasn't a, a must play. But um, things like that, from even like major publishers like Nintendo, games that have no cultural issue i suppose that couldn't translate i guess quite easily to a person in england or a person like us in australia there's nothing that would stop us enjoying it to equal amounts as um as an american would but they just don't get put out here because maybe they just didn't do well in america and so they're like we're not going to waste time distributing it in europe or australia because we think it'll do equally as bad and us enthusiasts who are into those sort of niche little games that that maybe don't do financially well so you used to lose out quite a bit that's a big reason why region locking became such a big issue when it came to video game consoles i guess we are now in a lucky period where none of the consoles are region locked well correct me if i'm wrong but i don't believe any of the consoles are region locked not that i can think of yeah um yeah not that i can think of that is unprecedented because well you, you go back to the 80s and the nes was region locked the game boy wasn't for whatever reason, Nintendo handhelds weren't region locked until the DS for some odd reason. I the DSi, like even the original DS wasn't region locked. Well, exactly. It was the DS wasn't region locked, and then it was the DSi was region locked, and the successive models, and then the 3DS was a hard region locked. I guess I took it for granted growing up because I think I can't really remember if I ever was aware that the 64 and the GameCube were region locked, but I do remember when it came to the Game Boy Advance. I actually got mine in Singapore because I was on a family holiday at the time in 2001 when it first released and we went to a shopping centre in there and picked one up because my parents were going to give me one for Christmas anyway and they thought, oh, it's out and we're over here, may as well get it. I think, can't remember if it was any earlier than the Australian release. It might have actually been a bit earlier as well, so that was also a factor in getting it there. And then we went to China afterwards and in Beijing, I remember going to this very shady sort of flea market with my family and we picked up some Game Boy games and some Game Boy Advance games that they weren't legitimate in the very least. They were all fake from hacks and there was this fake Pokemon game and there was a counterfeit copy of Grand Theft Auto on Game Boy and things like that. And I remember playing that a lot on my 
Game Boy Advance. So the first couple of months I had the Game Boy Advance for, I only played Game Boy games on it, which was quite ironic and they weren't Australian games at all. So from that experience, I very much thought, oh, you can go anywhere in the world and you can get games and you can just bring them back and play them on your console. But eventually I think I cottoned on to the fact that that wasn't possible and it was very much during that Wii era that, like you mentioned, that I, I recall hearing about certain games that I wanted to play and chief among them were Baton Kaitos Origins, a GameCube game that was only released in the US and Japan. It didn't get a power release for the exact reason you mentioned that it didn't do well in the US. So I actually imported a copy around 2012, 2013 and used Homebrew on my Wii to hack it to be able to play that game. And I actually never really got that far into the game because as most of my friends know, and you're very well aware, Zach, that I'm absolutely atrocious with actually playing video games. Buying video games, I'm an expert. I love buying video games. <laughs> I'm great at buying video games. I always get great deals. I always get games that no one ever has ever heard of or people have heard of and they're like, oh, we've never seen this game before on the store shelf. How did you get it, Brendan? And I just sort of put my sunglasses on and wink at them because I have my secret <laughs> ways, of course. There's an element of localization. There's an element of region-locked games that makes games more exciting. And it, I think from a collecting point of view, getting games that don't release in your region, it sort of it adds something to the experience, I think. Yeah, I, I 100% uh, agree. First off, a quick story. I, I had a similar but sadly opposite experience to your overseas purchase um, uh, <laughs> so, you know, of, of a Game Boy, I suppose, uh, where when I was in the US as a kid, uh, I did buy a GameCube game when we got home. Hard found out it did not work and then took it to a cash converters and fingers crossed they were equally as unaware as I was and <laughs> luckily they were, they, they were and I didn't make a profit but I at least got some money back. Cause, um, and it's weird because even as a kid I remember saying to my mum, is there any chance this won't work on my GameCube? And she's like, I don't see why it wouldn't because why, yeah, why would you think that, you know? And I think by then I'd already bought Game Boy games in other countries like, you know, when I, I think we went to Hong Kong uh, when I was a bit younger and we bought a bunch of probably equally or definitely equally as um, hacked and, and pirated and fake uh, Game Boy games. Um, so no reason to think it wouldn't work on my on a, on a GameCube, but no, was wrong. But yeah, back to your thing about how you know there is an excitement about importing. I, I definitely agree. Again, it would have been for me during that Wii DS era that I definitely started importing as I you know got a bit older. Parents and myself, I suppose, both finally got comfortable with online buying because for, for a while, you know, uh, there was there was still a bit of hesitation. Like, if you're going to buy anything online, someone's going to steal your credit card data. Uh, now we just accept that our credit card data is going to get stolen and our banks will uh, cancel our cards quick enough so, so we won't lose any money as a society. But, you know, I would import games on the DS from Japan, I remember buying uh, like Daigasso Band Brothers and the two Owen Dunn games uh, as games I felt you know, comfortable enough playing without needing the fluent understanding of Japanese because they're just music games. Uh, and then, you know, for the Wii, uh, I definitely imported about three of those kind of niche sort of releases from, from Europe, uh, or at least three. Like I've got like Sin and Punishment for the Wii, which I don't think came out here. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it came out after at some point, but I'm pretty sure it was only in Europe. Fling Smash, because you got to have a copy of Fling Smash. <laughs> uh, <laughs> of course you have Fling Smash. 
why wouldn't I? And it came with a Wii remote. You probably have Wii Play Motion as well, don't you? Yeah, I have Wii Play Motion as well. Uh, again, an essential Wii purchase. Um, and then probably my favorite of them was Another Code R, the sequel to uh, Another Code or Trace Memory, as it was called in, I think, the US on the DS, which was, again, like one of those weird reverse scenarios where Europe got it, Australia didn't get it, because, again, Australia is always going to get the least amount of anything. And um, <laughs> America didn't get it either. So Americans, you know, if you're another code or a trace memory fan on the DS, did not get the the thrilling conclusion to that two-part series. <laughs> I'll wave my still shrink wrap copy of another code R in your face if you're one of those people. Yep, it's, you know. They, they'd be very jealous. Though I'm sure they could also own a shrink wrap copy. They just can't, and there's no reason to open it because it won't work on their Wii's uh, or their Wii U's. <laughs> but no one has a Wii U, Zach, so that wouldn't be the case. Good point. Good point. Are there any sort of games that you sort of are notable that you imported um, either at the time or maybe now, even in hindsight, some retro games that you, you've picked up, other than Ben Kados, I guess. <laughs> the first one I got from overseas was actually a game that I could have easily got in Australia and just it was very hard to track down a copy at the time and I couldn't find one and prices on eBay were quite expensive at the time. That was Fire Emblem Shadow Dragon on the DS which was a game that came out and sort of I guess failed. It wasn't particularly a popular Fire Emblem game. It wasn't particularly a successful game either and it kind of disappeared from Australia and I think that's another case about gaming in Australia, which we'll probably we've either touched upon before or we'll touch upon again at some point. That a lot of games in Australia, especially niche ones, they release and then they disappear from store shelves. You'll likely never see them again, and that was the case for Shadow Dragon. And as I've mentioned in other episodes, which I really need to stop referring to, is that I'm a huge Fire Emblem fan. So when I went to America in about 2011, I remember. That was a period of time where I first started getting into collecting games. I started getting into reading about games online, listening to podcasts, and really digesting that information and really honing in on certain games that I hadn't had a chance to play yet, but I really wanted to. And that's when I bought games like Ghost Trick and, uh, oh, I can't really think of anything else other than Ghost Trick, but I bought Ghost Trick. I bought. <laughs> good game. Oh, excellent game. I, of course, I haven't played it, Zach. But excellent game, I'm sure. I've heard very good things about it. But it was during that period, and I remember in 2011, went on a family holiday to Hawaii, and I vividly remember going on the GameStop website and doing a store search of various shops, GameStops were near, and searching through their games that they had online set that they had. And I actually wrote down this list of mainly DS games, because I knew at that point that DS games were region-free, and I had this list of about 10 games of oh i'd like to get these if i can and on top of that list was fire emblem shadow dragon and i actually did track it down and i actually did get that game and i played it and i was disappointed like a lot of fire emblem fans so whether it was worth that whole journey who (laughs) knows but it was a really fun experience and i guess it added a lot to actually getting that game because yes i could have easily got it in australia if i had pre-ordered it when it first came out at eb games but I didn't, and that closed the door on getting that game, but I managed to get it overseas. And that, in a way, started the trend of me ordering games from overseas, even though that was a case of one that I got when I was physically there. Because I I guess probably tied into the fact that after that, I started getting 
a bit more of my own income and a bit more autonomy in what I a bit more autonomy in what I could actually purchase and acquire. And after that point, I started importing random games from overseas. I got another Kodar. I started using Oz Game Shop to get games from the UK for cheaper than in Australia. And there were were certain games even in the Wii era, like you mentioned, that only released in the UK, only released in Europe. So that was a good avenue of getting those games. And and again, a lot of games were hard to find in Australia. So just from that point of view, it was a lot easier to use online avenues to get those games. And the 2010s probably saw that period of time where it was easier than ever to actually do that. It was easier. There were so many more sites online to get games when they were new. There were so many. eBay became even bigger than it was in the early two, in the mid 2000s when it first launched. So it was a lot easier to get games and import them into Australia. And there wasn't GST at that point. Postage was relatively cheap. Like it's not like it is now. So it was sort of a golden era. I feel that late 2000s, early 2010 period to import games did you get anything noteworthy during that period uh i mean yeah i i think that would have been when i got those you know yeah your fling smashes your um i got wii chess as well um if that's noteworthy uh, which i think <laughs> only came out in europe but i i definitely didn't get much like i wasn't a big user of oz game shop or dungeon crawl or any of those sites to get things cheaper because that was also when i was working retail so if a game was coming out in Australia, I typically could get it cheaper myself from re- from from where I worked. Insider scum. Yeah, exactly. Getting everything at cost price, and you know, for things like Ghost Trick, which I got a local copy of, you know, I knew that we would get one or two copies, and I just pre-ordered it now without needing to put a deposit down, which was great. So I was able to sort of make sure I got the niche stuff as well, pretty well. So it was really just those games that weren't coming out in Australia. Probably, I don't know if it's notable, but it's probably got some value, uh, was I got that uh, Pokemon Rumble Wii U, which had the little figurines that were basically the precursor to the Amiibo. Oh, yeah. And the game itself wasn't physical, but you got like a digital download code and like a box with a bunch of the figures. And I don't think the figures ever came out here. Uh, so that was probably something I was quite excited about, but also then quite nervous about like, do I buy a bunch of blind bags as well or little capsules and, and try and get all the figures? Is that a economically smart decision to do as a um, you know person in Australia who can't just get them at a reasonable cost? And that would have been a few years later because that was a Wii U game from memory. So yeah, it was stuff like that that I mostly picked up. And it's sort of the other thing, I guess, is like you, I would, whenever I was lucky enough to travel, you know, Japan or, or Europe or America, as I was aware of it, I, I started to target certain things like i remember when i went to italy around that 20 2009 2010 i can't remember exactly it would have been 2008 9 actually my target was freshly picked tingles rosie of rupee land and i was very excited when i eventually found that at some random italian like shop for i mean it was still full full price in euros but (laughs) better than paying import costs or paying for shipping and that kind of stuff uh and then obviously played it a lot on the flights you know and then the tour bus and stuff around around the rest of the italian trip because i got it probably in the first week of the of a three-week trip i think it was so have a lot of fun memories of, of that and in japan it was like you know targeting stuff like jump ultimate stars and that kind of thing but um japan if you have if you've ever been much easier place to find video games 
maybe not always bargains, but there's like extensive secondhand shops and uh, video game shops. So it's uh, one of the easiest places, I would say, to, you know, go hunting for stuff you want. And it was always a fun part of those trips when you, when you could. And it's quite sad when the um, 3DS went region locked because part of the fun, for me at least, when I was going overseas, I did like looking for Game Boy and then DS games. And that was sort of ruined with the 3DS unless I invested in a Japanese or a US 3DS to get those games. Or again, devices that would allow me to play them on my on my own Australian systems, I suppose. And for the 3DS, those mechanisms never existed to play region-locked games. I think midway through the 3DS's life, you could hack your 3DS and do it that way, download ROMs, and actually you probably could also disable region lock and play Japanese carts, though I'm actually not sure if that was ever possible or not. Yeah, but but it's very different to like... Like, I remember when I was reading magazines a lot uh, during like the GameCube, PS2, Xbox era, there was um, action replay discs that were just designed for getting past region locking, like a fairly inexpensive, easy-to-use sort of device or disc. I don't know if that's a device or not. Yeah, uh, that, it's a disc. You know, bypassed it. Yeah, like like the freeloader for the GameCube, I think it was called. Yeah, exactly. Like these these pretty, you know, non-invasive, non-hardware modifying tools to let you play foreign games, uh, which, as you're right, sort of went away partly because people got better at just hacking things, so you didn't <laughs> need to buy something. Um, you know, as I said, the Wii, you didn't even need to get a chip or anything. You could you, There were ways to do it all sort of at home uh, if you, if you wanted to. And then, you know, DS wasn't region locked, but if you wanted to, the R4 was a very easy way of downloading ROMs and playing games on it. And uh, um, I think already by then, PlayStation 3, and I don't know about Xbox, I think Xbox 360 might have still had partial or uh, region locking, but PS3 had already thrown away with region locking and started the trend towards where we are now, where there is no region locking. So you can get games from wherever you want. Talking about devices and mod chips and all that stuff, which is an entirely different topic in its own right, I have fond memories of a family friend would have been in the early 2000s talking about how they took their PlayStation 1 to some shady place in Sydney Chinatown to get a mod chip installed on it so they could play all these burnt PlayStation 1 games. And I just remember thinking at the time that, oh, or at the time not really realising what piracy was and all that, and thinking, oh, that's pretty cool. Like, what a fun thing to do. I think that, that that's sort of gone in gaming these days because you can do so much on online now. If you want to hack your console, you can order parts or more often than not, you can download software to do it for you. It's no longer, I need to hunt out shady places in the Vic markets where people will do this for you under the table. Yeah, I mean, there's a. There used to be a really famous, or maybe infamous, might be the right term, um, little shop not far from where I actually live now. It's closed down now, uh, but yeah, it was really well known for modding and chipping Xbox 360s. And I guess they would also. I don't know if they chipped Wii's, but I guess they just charged a service for doing the homebrew installation for you if you weren't comfortable doing it yourself. Because uh, I remember, I mean, I, I'm a bit of a, I'm a bit of a goody two shoes. I have never hacked a device actually um 
or done anything like that, but some of my friends did. I remember going with them to this place to drop off their 360s one afternoon and then come back the next day to to pick them up and went on a, a wild weekend of trying whatever the hell we wanted to on, on Xbox, <laughs> um, which was mostly just playing lots of Halo, if I'm being honest. But <laughs> you don't need a mod ship to do that, though. No, but we didn't have to, he didn't have to pay for Halo then, so, <laughs> so that, was the, that was the benefit. But, I mean, point being, that little sub-industry of, of people that chipped and did that kind of stuff has dead, has it, not has dead, has died, because uh, that store doesn't exist anymore. Uh, I don't know if they did anything else. They probably did computer repairs or something, but they're, they're definitely well and truly gone. Uh, and I, I imagine there's quite you know, a few others that used to maybe not make a living, but make some income from that service, and that's completely dead, a little sub-industry of questionable services. <laughs> but um, one thing a chip won't solve for you, not always at least, is uh, if you can't read the language that a game is in and no one's translated it, you're sort of stuffed, right? Uh, you know, we sort of, I touched on before, I picked up a few Japanese games over the years, and it's always been, I've always focused on ones that I knew didn't require a heavy level of, you know, understanding of the text to really enjoy rhythm games, fighting games, uh, platformers, things like that. But there's definitely quite a number of games that have never officially been translated by uh, the companies that, that made them uh, that, that really sting. Because I've, again, because I'm, I'm always just a bit funky, always holding out hope first that they will get official translations at some point. Because every now and then you get it happens, um, like what was it Trials of Mana or whatever, just just a year ago, official uh, translation on a on a collection. But there's a few that really still sting. Uh, for me, at least, it's definitely the, uh, the 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 handful of Ace Attorney games. You know, talking about Ghost Trick by the same creator, the handful of of Ace Attorney games that have yet uh, and probably won't ever get official translations. So like Ace Attorney Investigations 2, which probably stings the most because it's a sequel to a game that I have played. And then the Dai Gaktu Saiban, which I guess is like the great Ace Attorney. Is that the 1800s Japanese yeah. like Shogun one? Yes, Shogun one that also features Sherlock Holmes for reasons um, that I still yeah. don't know because, again, it's never been translated. And again, obviously that uh, lost out as well due to the 3DS region locking. If it's the error, Zach. Sherlock Holmes also existed in the 1800s. I mean, it makes, yeah, time-wise, you're not wrong. Uh, I just don't know why they needed Sherlock Holmes, but they did, and it is what it is. <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong, but Watson is turned into a Japanese anime girl, isn't she? Yes, correct. So, very upset, because I don't know why Watson's a Japanese anime girl, but, you know, I, I might never find out. Uh, and, and luckily, fans have obviously done translations of all these games, but... um. Again, there's part of me that's still like holding out hope that one day on a on a future system we get the like Ace Attorney complete collection, and for the first time ever, these games are officially translated, so I can sort of enjoy them. Which, if I think about how long it took for that again Trials of Mana game to get an official localization, uh, I think I've still got a number of years to go before uh, we hit the the upper limit of of original release to localized version that 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 game probably set a record for. Uh, but I guess the question I have for you, Bibbs, are there any games that stick out in your mind of like, you've always wanted to play them, but uh, the language barrier that you know is present has prevented you from even giving it a shot? I really have to think for this question because for a lot of the games that I really wanted to play that were Japanese exclusive, 
they had fan translations like you just mentioned. Games like, I know I keep on referring to the franchise, but Fire Emblem. The first six games in the series were Japanese only. It wasn't until the seventh game in 2003 that released in the West that it became a primarily worldwide franchise. Well, there's a few games after that that were Japanese only, but I digress. Those first six games, as a Fire Emblem fan, there were games I really wanted to try because I remember going online in the mid-2000s and reading about them and they had a lot of a lot of fans, a lot of diehard Fire Emblem people on Serene's Forest and websites dedicated to Fire Emblem were always talking about how those were the golden era of the series, those were the great games of the series and that they really elevated the franchise. So I was always really keen to try them out and they had fan translations, those dedicated fans of the series went to the effort of doing it in their own spare time. Generally, fan translation teams are two to three people that will do some hacking of the of the ROM of the game to insert text, and you'll have another person that translates everything, which is an insane amount of work if you think about it, and it just shows the dedication of these people that want to make those games widely accessible, which I've always really admired, and I think it just shows how how dedicated certain people are, and and also the the sense they have that they want to, I guess, give back the communities that they are really invested in, video game communities that they've made friends in and that they're just really passionate about. They love the source content and they want to ensure other people can play it because a lot of people that can translate, fan translate these games, well, the assumption is they can read Japanese because they translate it from Japanese to English. So they could play the, those games themselves. They can enjoy the games to a degree without the translation process, but they still go to that effort to do it. And from that, I played the fourth Fire Emblem game, Genealogy of the Holy War, and that's a brilliant game. That's one of my favourite games I've played, I must say. It's brilliantly written, has one of the best stories in video games, I would argue. The gameplay has some issues, but aside from that, it's definitely a worthwhile experience. It's one I'd recommend to a lot of people. But directly to your question, a game that never got a fan translation well, I think there's one that's in the works, but hasn't had a release fan translation, but I always was curious to play was Captain Rainbow on the Wii, which was this bizarre Nintendo published game that where you play as Captain Rainbow and you're on this island and the island is full of all these has been Nintendo characters that haven't had a game in years or decades in some cases and it's just this bizarre ad- adventure game where you go around this island and I think you help out the islanders to achieve their dreams or there's something along those lines. And I'd, I'd always just found it a sort of experience that would only come out of Japan and it's things like that that always catch my attention. So I think if I have to think of a game that has is still unplayable, well, to my knowledge anyway, is still unplayable, I'd have to go with Captain Rainbow. How about yourself, Zach? Well, yeah, uh, that's uh, that's another one that's on top of my list for sure. And do you have any experience with fan translations, or have you are you, are you the holdout? Do you wait for official releases? I've honestly never I've never played a, a fan translation. I've probably watched more on YouTube than I've played, if that makes sense. Um, but yeah, part of me still holds out hope, um, and I think it's just because you do get those fringe cases of um, games that do eventually get localized. Particularly now, as there are more and more ways to release games where you can probably find a business case for the cost of translating it is so little 
that you may as well do it and then to release it digitally where you don't have to commit to a certain amount of cartridges or disc printed that is usually what causes people to hesitate in terms of the cost i suppose of, of getting the translation done but captain rainbow is is an interesting one because there's a, probably a very good reason <laughs> that one wasn't uh translated other than just being a weird game but it, it has a, a scene with a, a certain famous mario character uh and they're highly implied i don't think it's explicit but heavily implied uh sexual device that they <laughs> they use during the game uh which i think is interesting to bring up and it's a good segue to, I guess, localization versus translation, because it's a it's a pretty heavily debated topic when it comes to games that come from a, one country to the other, where the idea of a Nintendo character having a, a sex device of any kind, even implied, seems weird to us in the West, right? Because Nintendo's family friendly, that wouldn't happen. But in Japan, some of those weird so, well, not weird, but some of those more sexual things aren't that taboo for their culture, right? They're just okay with it. Roshi in Dragon Ball. Yeah, Master Roshi being a perv. You know, there are, there are, you know, in Korea and I think to an extent Japan, there are just like kids games that involve like poking each other in the butt. And like that's, you know, that wouldn't fly here, but it's just what you do. Um, and it, it's normal there. It's become a an interesting battlefield in, in some regards as... Certain games come over from Japan to the West, and sometimes it's just choice of words that people get uppity about because they're like, oh, this isn't a faithful translation. And it's like, well, it's not faithful from a translation's perspective, but we had to rework it to make a sentence mean a bit more in, in context of, um, of, uh, of uh, us in the West, I suppose. Uh, and then, of course, you deal with the uh, the big C word being censorship <laughs> um, as things that are considered culturally appropriate in Japan or, or just accepted are toned down or removed in the West as part of the localization process. And it's it's a really tough one to determine what, I guess, the right answer is in a blanket way, at least, I think. You could probably look at each case and maybe make your own personal call on where you, who's right and who's wrong. But I know I definitely struggle to have a blanket rule of should games be materially altered as they come from you know one country to the other. Uh, I don't know. Do you have a, a view on you know these sort of localization sort of trends and often controversies that come up a lot? I do, and I've often got into arguments over this especially in the Discord chat that we're both in. It came up recently with Tokyo Mirage Sessions Sharp FE on the Wii U and then earlier in this year released on the Switch. And I think the Switch version of Tokyo Mirage Sessions used the Wii U Western version and that had some changes made to it. The main changes in that game were things like in the Japanese release, there were characters that showed some cleavage, they showed off their legs primarily um, female characters, and that was changed in the Western version. They, instead of, ha- they, like, added pants to certain characters, they had tops that didn't show as much, cl- that weren't as low cut. And just changes like that that honestly don't really change the experience at all in my mind, but for a lot of people that does change the experience and they fall back to the argument of it's the artist's intent, it's the creator's intent that these games should have those things in it. It's part of the experience. So what people like Nintendo Treehouse, Nintendo America's localization team are doing is sort of 
tantamount to high treason and this is an awful thing to do. This is censorship. This is something that shouldn't be done. And I've always taken the view that the use of the word censorship in that case, in that argument over video games, very much demeans the word because I think it can be argued and I argue that in a lot of cases it's not censorship. It's it's catering to markets like you inferred because I think for a large part it might not be the creator's intent that they want these things in the game. They do it because that's what the Japanese market likes. That's in that culture that's seen as acceptable. That's seen as it's something people find amusing. It's something that they enjoy. Whereas we have different values in the West. There's different values outside of Japan, and I think it's it's the publisher of the game acknowledging that fact, and they are making slight changes to the game to to factor that in to because they are aware of those differences in culture. Whereas I think censorship throughout history, especially in the last 100 years, evokes ideas of book burning, running people out of town, vicious attacks on people for writing certain books, the banning of books, and serious things like that that have ramifications that are far-reaching than, oh, I can't see some tits and ass in this Japanese video game. I'm going <laughs> to go on Twitter and rant about it. I, I just... For me, it's not really censorship, it's something else, which I think it's it's fair enough to argue about it. It's fair enough to say that creator's intent, it should be exactly the same. But I think in reality, we're a different market and there's nothing wrong in it. I know there's there's movies that do it. I, I, I know it's not really, it's not censorship at all, but the Chinese version of Iron Man 3 added all this sort of marketing things for the Chinese market and there's a scene where a Chinese doctor for memory saves Iron Man and just things like that for that specific market. It's not unique to video games and I don't think it's I don't think it's a crime that should be derided. Yeah, I mean I think I tend to agree with you on that. I mean I I can't, I wish I remember which developer it was. I don't know if it was uh the Tokyo Mirage Sessions guy or a um something else. But I remember one of them even was asked about it and they're like, well I you know, that's just a almost inconsequential part of the game i i'd rather it get changed and more people experience my game worldwide than it you know have a controversy and and not sell well because of uh it gets like an ma rating um or something like that i think it was one of the i can't remember what publisher it was or what developer was but was it one of those games where you tap the you you like tap the back of the vita or you tap the touch screen to undress characters or pet them or something i think it was something like that yeah, I, I, but there might even be a few, honestly. I, th- I think a lot of game developers, when you ask them what's the core of their game, these elements that are getting changed aren't necessarily the core, and they're probably not that fussed about it getting removed or, or changed. They're probably more concerned, you know, if you were to do a real sweeping change to the story or the gameplay that actually, like, changed what experience they were trying to convey. But Or poor localization that ruins the meaning of the story, for example. Yeah, exactly. That's something they'd be way more upset by, and we we'll probably talk about that in a second as well. But whether someone's wearing a V-neck top or a you know something a bit more high up, so you see less of the boobs when they're a high school girl, I don't think they care that much. Uh, and th- there are some exceptions. I think she's a thousand-year-old dragon. It's okay. Yeah, it's okay. They're now eighteen. You know, and there are some exceptions. Like I think the the Senran Kagura series, which uh, is all about the sexiness and that director is all about it i think he's what is his spoken mission is to 
bringing the joy of boobs to the world. <laughs> you know, so those games don't fool. I mean, I, maybe there are some changes to them. I, I'm not across them all. There's so many these days, but uh, you know, they they still convey that level of sort of quote unquote sexiness that he envisioned because t- that is an integral part of those particular games. The Tokyo Mirage Sessions or random RPGs, it, it probably isn't as big of a part. <laughs> Um, so I don't know if the creator's intent argument def- holds that much muster to these these very small components to a pretty large games, because to me that really just comes down to the core message, the core gameplay, the core story that the, the developer wants to spread across the world. As an aside, uh, this sort of conversation reminds me of the anecdote about Suda51, a grasshopper manufacturer, quite a, or to a Japanese video game developer. And there was an interview a couple of years ago where I can't remember for what game it was, but the interviewer brought up this very niche, very obscure PS2 game he developed called Michigan Report from Hell that was only released in Japan and Europe. And Suda51 replied with, well, oh, I didn't even realize it was released outside of Japan. That's news to me. And then they moved on for the rest of the <laughs> interview. And that, that, that always stuck to my mind of, Sometimes the developers don't really know what happens in the game after it's developed. They sort of, it gets released by the publisher and then they move on to the next one. Yeah, and you know some of them are just creating it for their home country, wherever that may be. And if it gets released elsewhere, so be it. <laughs> they're not they're not always that worried about it because um, it's just not who they are personally targeting. But other than obviously changing of things that are sexual, there are sometimes attempts uh, at trying to make something feel a bit more relatable to the western audience that don't work out or i don't think they work out Uh, a really prominent one again to bring it up is the ace attorney series where they try and take what is a game set in japan and then change it to a game set in the usa and so a character whose favorite food is ramen uh is now hamburgers for example and it became a very... Mmm, donuts. We've got to love them. Yeah, donuts when they're holding a rice bowl or an onigiri or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and it became more and more like... I, I feel for the for the people who were trying to stick to that narrative because like, as the games went more and more you know, into very specific Japanese cultural elements to their stories or their scenes, they, they really battled t- to try and find a way of americanizing it that didn't always work out super well i mean don't get me wrong none of those games were ruined and all super enjoyable and to an extent it's part of the charm of of the localizations now but um you know i imagine if if they had their time again uh or if the games were localized for the first time ever in 2020 uh i think they would just be like no people know what ramen is people know this they don't need to be you know fed hamburgers (laughs) Uh, not sure if that's literally, but uh, spiritually, I suppose, to to get this this girl likes a a popular food kind of thing. Do you have any games that stand out that had those sort of weird attempts at trying to make them more relatable to to you know the Western or let's be frank American uh, market that uh, either worked or or didn't work? I can't think of anything specific, but it does make me think of the original Pokemon games that were clearly based on specific Japanese regions, like the first one is called the Kanto region. It can't get any more explicit than that. But in a way, how they did Pokemon was 
yes, you're in a fantasy world where you're catching creatures that you're battling against other children who also capture creatures and have teams of creatures and they travel the world on their own to do this. So not realistic at all. But the fact is, it's not particularly that Japanese aesthetic of that game. It clearly is inspired by Japan, but it, it creates its own fantasy world in a way. And I think that's what a lot of Japanese creators do very well in that they make these worlds, they make these landscapes that are obviously Japanese, but they do it in a way that gives it this sort of fairy tale, magical quality to it that makes it feel like it's something else, it's not quite of this world. And and I know games like that are littered with things like currencies and yen and there's small Japanese touches that do make you think this isn't quite Western, this isn't Australian, this isn't American, it's something different. Pokemon's an interesting one to bring up because that's a series that we've only this year found out dodged a, a massive bullet, I would say, in, in what would, could have been a really disastrous attempt to uh, make it appeal more to the to the West where there's that anecdote, uh, I think directly from the, the head of the Pokemon company uh, about, or, or somebody talking about uh, a scene with him in it, but I'm pretty sure it was him. Um, when he, well, they were bringing Pokemon to the US and either Nintendo of America, somebody had d- redone designs of Pikachu to like be a bit more of like a tiger with boobs. That <laughs> um, was what they thought would sell better to uh, US children some for some reason. Sort of the reverse of what we're talking about now. They try to sex, sex it up. And luckily the Pokemon, you know, creator uh, and head of the Pokemon company squashed that idea. Like what he no, we're just gonna it's gonna keep Pikachu as he is. <laughs> so very, I would say. Well, some some of you might be seeing it and be like, "God damn, I wish we got sexy Pikachu." <laughs> That's what I you know I'm all about. Uh, and to you, I'm sorry that it didn't go that way, but I think most of us are pretty happy that it kept. I guess its original cutesy design because you know that's like another thing where there's this perception that cute things which do well in Japan aren't gonna do well. Uh, in the in the US, uh, or at least there was, and that maybe have been proven wrong enough times now that people have learnt. But Pokemon dodged that bullet. Other things haven't dodged that bullet, I suppose. And even to an extent, we see some really almost I don't know if you call it localization. This might be a completely different kettle of fish, but like basically different games released to to what is uh, you know coming out in Japan. The infamous one is, you know, Super Mario Brothers 2 got subbed out with with Doki Doki Panic, and that was the Super Mario Brothers 2 for the US because they thought that, um, and the rest of the of the Western world, I should say, because they thought the original Super Mario Brothers 2 was too hard, not you know anything culturally about it, but just too hard to to be played by by US gamers. Uh, another Nintendo one is uh, Elite Beat Agents, which was a completely brand new game made on the concept of Oendan, because uh, they thought the idea of Japanese male cheerleaders was too you know, hard to translate to a US audience. So let's just make a completely new game on the same mechanics, starring uh, effectively disco FBI agents. And unfortunately, the game still flopped, I think, um, by, by most metrics. But what a masterpiece that flop is. What a masterpiece. Yeah, uh, it, it, it's amazing. And, and so are the two Japanese yeah, you know, cheerleading versions as well. But you do get these weird anomalies again, for better or worse, where where they completely change up the game. Uh, and so 
you end up with with effectively one game that's for Japan and one game that's for uh, the rest of us. My favorite example of this is a game called Dynamite Decker on the Sega Saturn, which which I believe was also in the arcades as well. But it was localized not as Dynamite Decker, which would translate as Dynamite Cop, but it was it came out in the West as Die Hard Arcade, based on the Die Hard movie franchise with Don McLean, uh, Bruce Willis's character, just superimposed as the main character in the game. Wow. And it's exactly the same. It's a beat-em-up. It's exactly the same game as Dynamite Decker. Well, I think it was quite lucky that Dynamite Decker occurs in a skyscraper, so there was parallels to the Die Hard series, and they kind of just <laughs> ran with that and said, oh, no, it's it's not its own franchise now. This is Die Hard. Let's 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 have this game. And it's it's a really fun game, and it's an example that I've always thought probably improves the game in some ways because I absolutely love Die Hard. It's, it's one of the great Christmas movies, as I tell everyone that will listen. Wow, I, I that's that's one I haven't heard about, but I'm incredibly interested to to go watch a YouTube video <laughs> looking side by side the two of them now because that's that's fascinating. Uh, I, I, that's another thing because it's it's not always just about. I mean, I guess it is. I was going to say it's not always about getting people to understand a, a game or a franchise, but it's about marketing. But now I think about it, it's probably all really about marketing, right? Because even wanting the audience to understand something or, uh, you know, enjoy something just comes down to, is this going to be a marketable product to, to Western gamers? And obviously they felt a diehard arcade machine was going to pull in more coins than Dynamite Cop. And they're probably not wrong in that, in that particular instance. I bet that would have done much better in the arcades than uh, Dynamite. Uh, did you say it was Dynamite Cop? Yes, it would have translated Dynamite to? Cop. I'm sure everyone was all over diehard arcade. Um, you know, arcades around the world probably pull it out every every Christmas as uh, in honor of, of Die Hard and, <laughs> and rake, rake in a few more coins. We can only hope. But yeah, I think probably one of the weird but general uh, takeaways, I guess, from this disparity in games across regions or, you know, some games coming out in some places and not others, is it, it does create this nice... Oh, maybe I'm romanticizing it too much and maybe it's because I'm a collector, but I do really find there's there's a bit of a charm to like learning about all these games that have come out in places that i don't live and and seeing them online or you know seeing them at events like a a games done quick has been great where every now and then there's someone speed running a really obscure game from not even like always japan sometimes just random sort of european countries or whatever um and you just discover this completely new thing that sort of feels a bit more exciting than something that's necessarily rocked up on the shelves and um we could have bought quite easily uh, but i think it, i feel like it's going away like i feel like the amount of games i i want that don't get localized is is very little to none in this day and age i don't know if that's just me or like do you feel it's it's we're trending away from from games not getting localized and sort of easily available pretty much you know anywhere that sells games I definitely agree, and it started at the beginning of the last decade in the 2010s when you had cut publishers like Rising Star Games and Exceed in the US that started localising a lot of these games. Of course, you had that happen in the 90s, primarily in the US, with the famous example being Working Designs, or I should say infamously, it's quite a divisive company for a lot of Japanese game enthusiasts. JRPG enthusiasts especially. But 
since that period where these companies started localizing these games, you've also had other companies jump onto that bandwagon as more Japanese games, I guess, gained currency again, that they, like the 90s, where I think Western publishers tried to get as many Japanese games out as they could because that's where the large proportion of the games were developed and came from, as we talked about at the very beginning of the episode. That happened again, I think, and the internet, YouTube, Twitch, Let's Plays, they really opened up a new market for these games. So publishers started putting more effort into getting those games out to a Western audience. You had Atlas USA pumping out a lot of DS games, PSP games, really localizing as much as they could to a US audience. And generally that often, more often than not, trickled over to Australia and Europe as well. And now I think what we have is most major Japanese games will get localized into English. There's still a few niche games that won't, but I think those are more of a rarity now than they used to be, as you mentioned. What's changed in the collecting landscape is that most a lot of games are now digital only, and it's more of a case of there's limited releases of physical games, like your limited run games, special reserve games, super rare games, and I think there's at least 10 different companies now when at the beginning of this phenomenon there was only limited run games and now nearly every digital game that you could think of, even the really obscure ones, get physical releases and generally limited ones. So instead of a collector trying to import these games and having these rare imports as the centrepiece of their collection, you now have people getting these digital games that are the centrepiece of their collection because there's only so many of them published in physical form but and i've jumped on this bandwagon a bit as well as you're very well aware of i have a number of limited run games but and a super rare game as well snake pass on switch i have a copy of but one of my fears over this is in a way it's deluging the market again because a lot of these games that are getting physical releases and limited ones that at that i guess getting hyped up aren't that remarkable in many ways, I'm sorry to say. I'm not, not trying to be harsh, of course, but they don't quite have that currency as Earl Wendon did, as these mythical games that were only Japanese only, that never came out in the West, did. They they just lack that something special about them. Yeah, well, I think there are exceptions, and I'm sure people will point to those exceptions, but some of the games that are standouts, I guess, like real, let's call them phenomenons, are getting less limited runs, if that makes sense. So, like, uh, Untitled Goose Game, for example, just got a physical release uh, that is is not that limited, right? It's um, actually got, you know, I got a local Australian copy with not a sticker, but a, on the label, you know, Australian rating on it from a local uh, Australian retailer. Uh, because even though it's a very short, should just be a download game, really, but... um because it's that popular and big, it justified a more substantial release um, compared to, again, some, uh, maybe the majority is based on the what you said, you know better than I, um, of, of games that get these limited runs and they know couldn't really succeed if they were just made available at, at store shelves worldwide. But there is probably one, oh, there's a sour note to, to maybe end the, uh, the podcast on, but it probably keep a bit of mystery alive, I suppose. Uh, there was a news story at the week we're recording this, or maybe within the two weeks we're recording this, that uh, Level 5, 
who are probably most well known for Professor Layton or Nino Kuni, uh, Yokai Watch, Inazuma Eleven. I think a Dark Cloud on the PS2 yes. as well. Shout out to Dave. That's one of his favorite games in memory. Yeah, so they're they're pretty well known as a doing a lot of genres, but I'd say RPGs is maybe their core bread and butter. But there's a, a reports going around that they've shut their US operations and that potentially going forward they won't be localizing their games, uh, which would be a bit of a step back from at least for the last decade. I reckon almost all their games did get localized, uh, sometimes a few years later than when they came out in Japan. But they came here and they came to the America and, and to Europe as well. And that may not be the case without potentially other parties publishing in in other countries so for example if there was a new professor Layton, you could see nintendo footing the bill to localize and put it out worldwide because that franchise probably of all their franchises carries the most value didn't nintendo publish the first five or six professor Layton's? i think they publish almost all of them i don't know about the latest one i think they might have even done the latest one on switch and I think Treehouse did the localizations for memory. Oh, it's a bit of a spider web. Uh, they might have, but I know that there's a, at one point the European and the American localization split. Um, ah, I see, I see. But yeah, it's a bit of a, a web. Um, but yeah, you're right. Nintendo originally owned the franchise or co-owned it with Level 5 after the first game. And then they, they sold their rights to Level 5, but continued to publish it overseas. Because again, it, at least on the DS, it sold extremely well. And I think since then it sold okay but not as well as it once did but regardless the point i'm yeah sorry <laughs> no it's okay uh, we love our tangents uh the point i guess i'm getting at is it's an interesting development because it's i guess bucking away from that trend which we just touched on where more games we feel are getting translated for as many countries as they can and here we're seeing potentially a company regressing to Hey, like we've had a bunch of flops in the US and, and Western countries. Uh, you know, Yoko Watch, which was their license to print money in Japan, never took off here. And now they're just choosing no, we'll just we'll just pull out, it seems, or you know, if the reports are to be believed. I guess what I'm curious to get your thoughts on is how first off, how do you feel about, you know, if, if this is the case and that's how level five goes? But also two, is this do you reckon that this is the start? Of a of a trend of other Japanese developers like maybe a Marvelous or certain maybe Bandai Namco games or Koei Tecmo games, which uh, are maybe more niche, going back to just nah, it's, we're not going to do well enough in the US. Just just put out in Japan and we'll we'll live with the sales we get there because they'll make enough money anyway. I think it is a sad occurrence, of course, but I also think that there's another element to it in that. Yes, this could have an impact of what's released in the West, but conversely, I think if these games are still developed by Level 5 and especially part of these franchises that have a history of selling, even if it's selling minimal copies, I think there's going to be someone in the West willing to do a localization, even if it's on the cheap and publish it in the West, even if it's only digital only, even if it's only a limited release, for example. I think there's still going to be parties interested enough in these games because I think we've passed that point of return in a way where there were these games locked away in Japan and they'd never 
be seen outside of Japan. I think for the most part, these games are now going to have an international audience for better or worse because the Western market is just so much bigger than the Japanese market used to be. It's Japan's a relatively small country. It had a cap, whereas the Western market for video games has kept on growing as video games will have grown more in currency across Europe. Like, just look at all the Polish developers now, for example, like your CD Projekt Reds and the like, and all those developers in Russia. It just shows that gaming has really grown from what it used to be. Even in as short a time period as 20 years ago, it's completely changed. So I think for the most part, a lot of these games are going to find their way out one way or another. But I think the impact it could suggest is that we could see a reduction in the amount of these games that are developed because I think what drove a lot of Level 5's games were the amount of success they had in the US, the amount of success they had in Europe and Australia. Professor Layton became a phenomenon. I had a friend who used to cosplay as Professor Layton and it just became one of those characters that a lot of people knew about. Just outside of gaming as well, probably helped because the DS was that cross-platform Blue Ocean console that we talked about last episode that cut through a lot of different demographics and the impact this will have is that we won't see as many games we won't see as many professor laden games we won't see as many new series at level five try to produce like snack world and yokai watch in in azuma 11 that yes were very popular in japan but you have this feeling that they kept on developing and, and kept on pushing them because they they hoped they could also get western traction as well they hoped they could have these series across countries like professor layton did which was big in japan and big outside of japan but it's failed and i think a sad reality is i think for the most part it's just a trend in gaming where it's happening to a lot of japanese developers you you just look at japan studios of sony they used to be the sort of core of sony's first party development they used to produce a lot of their innovative and big games like your icos like your shadow colossus like or last guardian was a bit of a took years to come out and i think didn't have as much impact as it would have if it came out on the ps3 they've been eclipsed by the western studios of sony like you you had you had guerrilla games release ghost of tsushima this year and i think that's indicative of it in that ghost of tsushima is a game set in japan but well, it's, it's it's developed by a Dutch studio. It's developed by Westerners. It's not developed by by a Japanese studio. But it leans heavily into Japanese culture and Japanese history. So you very much have this shift, I think. Well, I mean, a really again topical uh, at the time of recording example is the PS Five. A weird console localization quirk was uh, in Japan. Circle button for PlayStation has been. Yes, like accept, and X has been no, which uh, just lines up with their universal symbols of circle meaning okay and cross meaning wrong or no, like blah, blah, uh, which kind of makes sense when you think about it. Uh, but for some reason in the West, we've always had it as the other way around. I think maybe X marks the spot is maybe the logic. I'm not too sure, but it is what it is. But now PS5 is officially making globally with no option to change uh, as far as we can tell X the yes button, which is going to throw a lot of Japanese PlayStation owners through a loop, to say the least. And I've definitely heard in a few podcasts of, from people in Japan that they're quite annoyed, to put it politely. And I don't know how much that it's got to do with, I think, the current head of PlayStation globally, or at least 
or I don't know if head of PlayStation, but at least head of their um, all their studios is is uh, is now a Westerner compared to previously being you know Japan led, I suppose. Um, so maybe that's part of it. But you're right, yeah. Like the prominent Sony studios, I think of are all Western: Santa Monica, uh, Naughty Dog, Insomniac, as opposed to yeah, you're right. It was literally just called Japan Studios, which was once, you know, well known for your Icos and your Last Guardians, and every now and then something like a Loco Roco and a Patapon and a Gravity Rushes was really shrunk in, in many regards. It's kind of interesting because it's maybe a topic for another day, but there was, I remember there was that period where, like, you had certain uh, Japanese developers saying Japan gaming is dying, uh, Keiji Hinofune, probably the, the famous person of saying that. Um, and he wanted to revitalize the industry and make it more like Western development. And we've sort of seen him proven sort of wrong, but sort of right, I would say. Like, it's mixed. Like, some games have resurged. There have been certain Japanese franchises that have, I think, brought them back, that that industry, or that country's development back up to the dominant, not dominance, but the prominent level it used to ha- have. You know, Devil May Cry has done well, the latest one. Monster Hunter has finally cracked the West and become a, you know, a, a brand to, you know, reckon with here. So Capcom's, you know, on a roll in that regard. Konami's just completely bowed out, I suppose. And it feels like the others are kind of just a bit more stable, like your Koei Tecmos and your and your Bandai Namcos. They all have their hits. Like, obviously, the Soul series is, does extremely well, and that's from Japan, from Bandai Namco. Koei Tecmo, I feel like, a bit more just... They just tick along, you know. You get your your warrior game of some kind or multiple in a year, but don't have the same breakout success that you might see in these other companies. And then Nintendo is just Nintendo, <laughs> like the Nintendo is almost its own its own country <laughs> in some regards. It it's, it doesn't <laughs> uh, follow follow the Japanese gaming trends uh, one way or the other. Nintendo Land forever. Yeah, the the. the that's that's what it is. Like you know, you actually open their doors to their um, offices, and you actually transport it into another universe, which explains a lot. But it'll be curious to see, I guess, how it how it goes, because I think it's I don't think Japan will ever be the dominant player anymore, but I think it can still be an extremely strong player in that space, and we're still going to get a lot of games from Japan, uh, but also hopefully just more games from other countries. Like I mean. Again, very topical. Genshin Impact is doing very well, which is a Chinese game. And I know it's not the first Chinese game to do well, but it's probably the one that I've seen do the best, not with people who speak Chinese, (laughs) without trying to sound, I don't know if that's uh, an insensitive way of putting it, and if it is, I apologize. But I mean, like, a lot of the other really big Chinese games I think of do well in either people who are from Chinese heritage or just from China and that have moved overseas. But Genshin Impact's doing well with everyone. Everyone's loving it and playing it and having a great time. And so I imagine we're going to see more and more stuff like that. You know, you already touched on CD Projekt Red, Poland, doing gangbusters with The Witcher. Probably going to do gangbusters with Cyberpunk in uh, a month or so time. And we'll see other countries have their stars sort of hopefully rise up to the top. So it becomes a very global industry with dominant players from from everywhere um including hopefully here in australia we've obviously got some indie powerhouses but we have hollow knight embracing yeah hollow knight a goose game <laughs> another one um we got a little... tie the tasmanian tiger 
the, <laughs> we dreamed that they would have, you know, Ty could have been the next Sonic the Hedgehog. Right? Maybe, maybe in some ways he was. The, the he definitely <laughs> was. The amount of times he says, you beauty, it, it, it really, it could have caught on, mate. It could have caught on. Oh, 100%. I mean, I think it was just too early. We look at how well uh, in, in the cartoon space Bluey's doing. Um, I think globally, from what, what I understand, you know, the world's ready for Australianisms more than ever. So keen to see that play out in the video game space with a, a blockbuster hit that um, pushes the studio into that double A, triple A sort of space at some point. But yeah. I think to finish it off, I think the days of well, we never experienced it because we're in the superior region of power because we're Australian. But <laughs> I think the last gasp of this phenomenon we had of these mystical Japanese games locked away was about 10 years ago with Project Rainfall and your Wii games of Xenoblade, Pandora's Tower and The Last Story, which I think we do have to mention before we end this episode because that's sort of when localization captured a lot of people's attention in video gaming you had an entire fan campaign sprout out of it with their own website a facebook page that had thousands of followers a twitter account similar and you had this mass movement that in the end was successful they got those three games all released on the wii in america nintendo released them all in australia and in europe on their own because superior nintendo of europe i must say but I think that is one of the reasons why it's less of an issue now than it used to be because a lot of Japanese publishers, a lot of companies in the West now see that there is a market. There's people willing to buy these games. They just need to be localized. Yeah, that's right. Like they're, they're realizing all you really, from a you know financial returns perspective, the costs of developing the game are already gone. They are what they are, and hopefully they recoup them in Japan already. Uh, so it's just the cost of getting the localization to translation done and. Again, I think now that digital games are you know, here to stay, there's a very cheap and safer way of releasing them. Because, you know, again, we've seen games just revert to digital, right? Like in Ace Attorney, physical yes. series in Japan, digital only now. So it's better than not getting them at all, right? So but we're, in, we're in a new era. And it really gives the franchises a good chance as well. Like, look at Xenoblade. It struggled to get an American release. Now it's one of Nintendo's major franchises, and each release sells at least a million copies worldwide. Yeah, 100%. And, um, yeah, same things about, like, a, a Fire Emblem, you know? Once a series that never came out here, now very popular, very dominant in, in the sales charts when, it, you know, Three Houses came out. Um, so there's definitely, in this more globalized and connected world, uh, <laughs> a space to... There's a business case now for localizing most things. Not everything. And again, what we're probably not talking about and we won't bother is the probably countless indie games that do get produced in Japan that don't ever come out of there that are some of which are going to maybe more of the R-rated and X-rated nature and then some aren't. Um, yeah, let's let's not talk about those. <laughs> yeah, um, but you know, they're, they're never going to get localized. But at the same time, it's the, it's the same here, right? Like there's probably of the dozens to hundreds of oh, pieces of crap that come out on steam on a daily basis how many get translated into other languages probably very few um so that there's plenty of games that that will never get translated and 
in those cases, maybe that's fine. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, for that was a, a fun little uh, discussion, particularly in a, in a world that is currently locked down and we, you know, experiencing other countries is impossible. Uh, it is fun to sort of think about these games from other places around the world and maybe getting a little sort of tastes to some extent of those countries that they come from. Or in the case of uh, Ghost of Tsushima's uh, situation, not where they, <laughs> other countries where they're not from. <laughs> <laughs> but unfortunately, one thing that isn't localized, unless somebody out there wants to do it, is this podcast. Um, so hopefully you understand us. And if you do understand us, then I hope you really understand what we're about to say, which is, I'm going to start with an important one, this, you know, first, Brendan. If you're listening to us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, sorry, as it's called now, why not leave us a review in whatever language you like? I don't care. As long as you give us five, no, you can give us whatever stars you like. Five stars is nice, but any stars is acceptable because um, the algorithm doesn't care what language you speak. It just wants to see people care about this podcast. And uh, if they see people care, it'll it'll help spread it across the world uh, so we can trend in in places like where does where does Hasamaria trend was it Denmark or something like that that it's really popular Denmark Belgium they were huge Denmark. in Denmark and I've noticed from the metrics we've had listeners in South Africa and Brazil so we're cracking it I think yeah thanks thanks to our overseas listeners um, and if you want to again reach out to us um, preferably in English because you know otherwise we're going to rely on Google Translate <laughs> to, to understand you can do that in a number of ways. Uh, first off, if you're on Twitter, at Blowing Cartridges, just find us on there. Uh, if you want to email us, blowingcartridge at gmail.com. And of course, Facebook, if you're on that, uh, just search Blowing Cartridges and uh, look for our logo. We should pop up, Blowing Cartridges Podcast, I should say. Uh, and we can respond on there. Or alternatively, if you want to just reach out to me, because you want to speak to me, because you don't want Brendan to respond to you, which is understandable. Uh, you can find me on Twitter would be the best place, at Eggerino, E-G-G-E-R-I-N-O. Well, I think it got lost in translation, Zach, but our Twitter account is actually at BlowCartPod. Okay, yep, that's, you know, that's my problem. I can't understand English. <laughs> <laughs> but you can find me on at Tamazoid on Twitter, and I very much recommend to tune in because I think I'm going to put up a Twitter poll, and in that Twitter poll it's going to ask, if blowing cartridges was localized in Japan, would Zach or I be turned into an anime girl? I think we should let the fans decide because I don't know. Yeah, every great man has been turned into a woman by a Japanese game. Like look at Napoleon. Numerous games in Japan when Napoleon is a short, cute-looking anime girl. So I think we're both great men as well. So I'm sure one of us will be turned into an anime girl at some point. I can only imagine what our logo would be in Japan with one of us as an anime girl and the name of our podcast. <laughs> I can only imagine. Get your head out of the gutter, Zach. Hey, look, it's it's all about appealing to the local culture and uh, tolerance to, to these things. But yeah, thank you for listening uh, and thank you for tuning in. Uh, hopefully we'll speak to you again in, in a couple of weeks and you'll, your ears will be attuned to, to our sweet dulcet tones uh, again probably speaking more english and we won't try to butcher various foreign languages next time at the start of the podcast 
Uh, even though that's becoming a bit of a theme for us, ever since that first episode where you ended in German, you've really started to like set expectations, Brendan, that we speak languages that we just really don't at all. We gotta keep the fans guessing. We we gotta make things interesting. Otherwise, people will stop listening. It's what I keep on telling you, Zach. I don't care what the fans want. I care about what I want. I mean, wait, cut it out. Cut it out. End it. End it. <laughs>